Go ahead and turn to 2 Peter. If you don't have a Bible, there's one right in front of you. You can grab that and kind of follow along with us. Every single person that you're looking at this morning, if you just kind of look around the room, uh, has been teased in their life. We've all heard sticks and stones, uh, but we also know that wounds can run really, really deep. And some people, decades later, still remember how they were teased. They're still sort of self-conscious about some of the things that, that they may have been teased about on the schoolyard. Part of growing up is just finding out what's important and who is important. And what you begin to realize as you grow up is that some people's opinions of you really just don't matter. You can't possibly please everyone, nor should you try to please everyone. And so pretty soon as you grow up, you start to to learn that some people are going to label you a certain way, call you certain names, and it just doesn't matter. Growing up as a Christian... Is to, is to grow into a mindset that says Christ's opinion of me matters above all else. And a part of what growing up as a Christian means is to live out loud about your faith. To just let your undying love for Him, what He's done for you, what He means in your life, to just kind of show forth in all that you do. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, you want to do for the glory of God. That's part of growing up as a Christian. Now, ironically, as you grow as a Christian, you know what that invites? Teasing. It invites more teasing as you live out loud about your faith in God. Here are some names that I've been called and, uh, and labels that I've been handed. Fool, ignorant, intolerant, narrow-minded, bigot. Christian, if you live out loud about your faith, you've been called those names too. Sometimes in front of your back, sometimes behind your back. But I promise you, those labels attach themselves to Christians. Now, we have the holidays approaching, and holidays are famous for eating, right? At least here in America. And they're also famous for getting together with family members. Now, getting together with family members can be a hotbed for your faith being under attack. For your label as Christian, Christ follower, love for Jesus, to all of a sudden kind of have some of these come flooding back. So maybe it's just really, really timely that we're looking at this passage of Scripture and looking at this uh, in light of some future holidays approaching. The question I want to tackle, because the, the text tackles it, is this. How should you respond when you're teased, when you're mocked? How should you respond when people who you know are antagonistic to the Christian faith, to the Bible, to Jesus Christ, approach you? Should you avoid the topic? Should you change the subject? Should you bring up the subject and start to to engage? Some of your personalities no doubt play a role in this, but what do the scriptures say? Here's my question for you. How do you respond when people attack you? How do they, how, how, how do you respond when you're teased? Now, not even just externally, but what's going on inside your heart? Does your blood pressure start to go up? Is your first response anger, defense, run, hide, cower? What is it? What's going on? And then part two of the question is this. How should you respond? Is there a right way to respond? Or are we just kind of left on our own for that? All right. So that's where we're going. We're going to start to tackle some of those things. Um, you should be in Second Peter, but on your notes, I just put in there a passage from First Peter, and I want to I want to start this flow of ideas from First Peter because he actually Peter in our passage today talks about the whole of these two letters together. First Peter uh, chapter three verse fifteen is written in your notes. Now I want you to remember who's talking here, Peter. Uh, Many of us in this room would identify with Peter's track record about living out loud for his faith. He literally has been the range of Peter the Terrible to Peter the Great in this area. And I find that so encouraging. When I read the Gospels, I go, yep, done that. That was pretty bonehead and dumb to do. And then I see him be really bold outside of his own natural ability. And I say, wow, I've experienced that too. So maybe you've been like Peter the Terrible all the way ranging to Peter the Great in these areas. Think about the servant girl who was peppering Peter in Jesus' greatest hour of need. What did he do? Denied that he even knew Christ. He eventually got to a point where he's calling curses down on himself. Really, you know, I'll swear on a Bible is what he was basically saying. I don't know the man. Fast forward to the book of Acts and what you see Peter doing is this. 
the power brokers of the day are telling him, stop it, stop speaking about this Jesus. Here's his bold and courageous answer, under threat of physical abuse and lockup. Should I listen to you, or should I listen to God? I'm going to listen to God and do what he says, therefore, I can't obey your little request of stopping talking about this. Pretty bold, pretty courageous. Peter died for his faith. He ended up being a martyr. And to see his growth and transformation is encouraging, I think, to us. I want you to think about this as we get started this morning. How would it change your little world, and by that I mean your circle of people that you run with, how would it change your world if you could respond Christ-like in this area? You're facing ridicule, mocking. You're maybe facing even threats. What would it look like in your world? How would it change if you started to really respond Christ-like in this, in all things? Let me lift your vision a tiny bit. What if a whole church really, really began to respond in a Christ-like way to this? How would that change our neighborhood? What would that look like if, if as a community, we were known for responding in a Christ-like way to opposition? All right, this first letter of Peter starts the theme. 1 Peter 3.15, it's in your notes. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Would you just underline or circle always being prepared to make a defense? It's right there in your notes. Always being prepared to make a defense. Peter's telling Christians, a part of how you win in this area is to be prepared and not get flat-footed. When you're caught flat-footed, that's a frustrating feeling, isn't it? I don't care if it's in school, if it's in business, if it's a pop quiz in life, and you go, oh, I wish I had prepared for this. I wish I knew this was coming. Peter says don't do that. Be ready. Be ready, Christian. He goes on to say this in the passage, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Verse 16, having a good conscience so that when, circle the word when, this isn't hypothetical, this isn't a select few in certain corners of the world, this is Christianity, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So what I want to lodge in your brain is what I think Peter's trying to lodge in our brains. As disciples of Christ, these tests are coming. You're either walking through them right now or they're coming. That's why I could say with utter confidence, if you live out loud about your faith, if you're a Christian and you bear witness to Jesus Christ and your love for him, you will be slandered. Can I get an amen on that? Someone's getting slandered out there. Some of you are going, oh, it's coming. I wish it weren't, but it is. Be prepared for it. Don't let it take you by storm or by shock. So the question we're diving into today is, how do you make this defense? He gives us a little start. He says, do it with gentleness and respect. That would be kind of countercultural, wouldn't it? Rather than blasting away back on a you know Twitter battle, you know, with you know those different kinds of things people do. What if we really thought first gentleness, respect? What if we weren't caught flat-footed? Now, I'm not going to ask you to stand on a milk crate. I'm not going to ask you to wear sandwich board signs, scream at people, and run around and hit people with the Bible. But I am going to challenge you and show you some guidelines of what it looks like to give a Christ-like defense for the gospel that you have placed your, your faith in. It starts here showing that not only our words matter, but our character matters. Hey, when you're reviled and slandered, When you respond, when you give your defense, do it with gentleness and respect. And by the way, part of the scheme is that as you live a life that is godly, those who slander you will actually come out looking like fools. Because it will be baseless, all of their accusations. There will be something attractive about the way that you carry yourself at work, about the way that you're a neighbor in your neighborhood, about the way that you interact at family parties that just says, yeah, but he's not like the Christians that I've seen portrayed in the scriptures or in, in, in culture. That's not my perception of what a Christian is. There's something about it that bugs me because I'm actually kind of drawn to how that family, how that individual lives their life. 
All right, these first two verses in chapter 3 kind of provide a shift. There's a little flow that goes on. He, he actually provides a little purpose statement. As you study a book of the Bible, you ought to look for why did he write the letter? What's, what's going on? What was the occasion for, for, for bringing it up? In a way, what we're going to see here in chapter 3 is the subject line of an email, right? You, you kind of put in there generally what you're about to talk about. There's also a clear shift in things. He goes, uh, he goes from talking about false teachers. Remember dogs and pigs from last, the end of chapter two? That's who he's talking about. That's who he's addressing. Right here in, in verse, uh, in, in three one, he says it's to the beloved. Some of your translations say, dear friends. So catch the flow of the letter. He's now shifting his attention to talking to Christians about what he was just discussing. Peter knew something. He knew that your faith is only as strong as your memory. Your faith is only as strong as your memory. I prepped for a lot of this message while I was in the South. Last, uh, last Sunday, I got to enjoy worshiping um, at a church in Atlanta with my brother and his family, and um, kind of got to see some things down there. And, and while I was prepping at a Starbucks in downtown Atlanta, and just I had been there for, for a little while and was um, kind of thinking about this passage, it dawned on me that this part of the country um, remembers and forgets some things that feels different than my home area. I was born and raised in San Jose. So when I'm in a different part of the country, different regions of the country, just simply based on what they remember and what they forget kind of tells you what's important. Let me tell you what they remember in the South. They remember their manners. I mean, there are a lot of yes, sir, no, sir, thank you, please... At every turn, I felt like tipping my hat and saying, adieu, adieu. I, I didn't, it was bizarre to me. It was very pleasant. They remember their manners in the South. Is that right? Travis has given me a hearty head shake from Atlanta. Now, they have forgotten some things in the South. They have forgotten to count their calories and cholesterol. <laughs> they have evidently completely forgotten the effects of cholesterol in their diet. Now, transfer that back to where you're living. I don't care where you're from, but if you've been around here for any length of time, do we as a culture generally remember our manners here? No. Do we in general count and understand and think about and talk about the effects of calories and cholesterol? Yes. Do you see what I'm saying? So what you remember, I'm not talking about, those of you who are saying, well, I don't have a photographic memory, I guess my faith isn't going to be that strong. That's what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is what you keep in your mind, what you think about, what you talk about, really is what you value. So just prepping for this in a different region of the country kind of, kind of showed off that what you remember affects your life and what you forget affects your life. Peter knew a thing or two about forgetting. One of the things you, you just got to love about the Bible is that it puts in there the stuff that a human editor would have said, eh, I'm going to you know, shade that one out or kind of minimize that part of the story. Peter, the guy that wrote the letter we're looking at in this series, he's a guy, he was one of a few people that were there on a mountaintop when Jesus' humanity was pulled back. The veil of who he was was there, and he was glorified. You can read about it in the scriptures. It's called the transfiguration. It's this moment in time where Jesus, for, for a period of time, was shown to be who he was, this divine, eternal being. But Peter evidently forgot. We're pretty prideful. We think if we saw that, we'd never turn. We'd never deny. We'd never do these things. Peter was there, and he forgot. Peter swore up and down that he would never deny Christ, even if it meant killing him. Peter forgot. Peter had been told that the gospel's for all the nations. That he shouldn't discriminate against the Gentiles in favor of the Jews. But the book of Acts records pretty clearly, Peter forgot. Started showing favoritism again. It affects what we remember. And by the way, God has an interesting way, all, all those stories, has an interesting way of reminding us of some things. All three of those accounts of Peter, God, God used some things in his life 
to remind him. Peter knew that his faith was only as strong as his, his memory. And so like parenting, he's, he's parenting to remind. He's wanting to bring his readers along and, and remind them. One day the disciples are on kind of a road trip and the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. And Jesus starts to talk and he says this. He says, watch out, disciples. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the religious teachers. Now, you ever have a guilty conscience and no matter what's being talked about, you're thinking about the wrong that you did? Here's what the disciples start to do. They start to talk amongst themselves He knows we've forgotten the bread. And so all they could think about was bread and how they had forgotten about it. We've been there, right? And then it says this. It says, but Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, catch this, do you not remember? The five loaves for the 5,000? And how many baskets you gathered? Those were the leftovers. That's Matthew 16. So talk about an object lesson. Here's Jesus, not just telling them some things, but involving them. Teachers, you know that if you can involve a student in what they're trying to learn, that's like one of the highest levels of of retention, right? They're going to get it. I don't know how many disciple, I mean, how many laps Peter made with breads of, uh, you know, baskets filled with bread. But with each increasing one, it had to be no way. Can you even believe what's happening? And then sometime after, they're on this trip and they had forgotten. And Jesus isn't scolding Peter and the other disciples for forgetting bread. He's scolding them for forgetting the miracle. So as we move forward with this morning, and we hear all this remember, recall, I hope it doesn't diminish for you into um, thinking Jesus is going to come and scold you for missing your quiet time this morning. Forgot to pray. Forgot to read my Bible. I forgot to open my mouth. I forgot to attend. Sometimes we diminish things down to here. And what Jesus would come and correct is, no, 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 I don't care about that stuff. That's bread right now. You've forgotten your first love. That's that's the miracle. That's what I want you to remember first and foremost. Everything else will kind of take care of itself. Don't you see that if Jesus can provide bread for 5,000 people out of a few loaves, it takes care of forgetting bread for the rest of your life. You fall in love with Jesus. You keep that first. You never forget that. You never let go of that. It makes up for it. It takes care of all the little stuff that kind of goes on. So that's kind of the the big picture of this remembering and memory stuff that we talk about this morning. Peter builds their faith by building their memory. Let's let's look at it. 2 Peter 3.1. He says, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He's going to remind them of two very specific things. Number one is to think. He is stirring up their minds. Saying, I want you to engage your brain. Sincere is just a Latin word. It means without wax. And the idea was this. People who were selling pottery in the market, fakes and charlatans, would kind of fill in the cracks with a like-colored wax. And at first pass, you'd look at it and think it's all cool until you put something in it, and all of a sudden the integrity of that pot crumbles and falls apart. It's really kind of worthless. He's saying, I'm stirring up your sincere mind. I want you to, to think wholesome, not just pure, but whole, complete Don't fill in the cracks that you have in your thinking and in your understanding with just kind of silly God talk that you know you don't really understand what you're talking about, but it's just kind of putting on a good show to say, yeah, I've I've got my thinking down straight about this. Peter's stirring up the church's minds. Number two, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Here's what he's saying with that. 
Remember not just to think. Hey, I want to stir up your minds on this. But secondly, I want you to remember the Holy Prophets. That's the Old Testament. And I want you to remember what the commands have been given by Jesus Christ through the apostles. Guess what that is? The New Testament. You see what he's saying? Remember the Scriptures. I don't just want you to remember them as in knowledge, but I want you to remember them in your life so that your head and your heart and your will and your actions say that you've kept the Scriptures in mind. What is the judgment that Peter is making about the whole of Scripture here, the Old Testament and New Testament? Here it is, ready? It's authoritative. It's worth remembering. It's worth building your life on. He doesn't make any distinction, by the way, about parts of it or make any distinction about one part being more important than the second part. He's saying the predictions of the prophets and all that they point to and the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ and who he did that through, which is the apostles. Man, remember all of that. Build your life on it. Get to know it if you don't know it. That's part of growing up as a Christian. He says the whole of Scripture are revealed by God and to be trusted and built on. Now, this is a subtle little thing to, to pick up on, but this is actually a beautiful picture of, of just teen leadership that Christ, Christ took leadership and totally redefined it. What Peter's doing here is he's lumping himself in with the apostles. He's an apostle. He's writing a command to the people. Do you see that? He's commanding them. Church, do this. So he's not diminishing his leadership authority. He's not setting that aside and saying, well, who can really tell anyone what to do? He's making an, 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 an assertion. Do this. But he's blending himself right in line with all the other vessels that God chose to use from all their varied backgrounds as revealers of what God wants done. He understands that he's no bigger or smaller than the great Old Testament prophets or the minor prophets that some of you barely even know about. He's no greater or lesser than those who have written other parts, the other apostles. He's not putting himself out as first. He's not pushing his way. He's not shrinking back and, and coming away from leadership. He's actually showing kind of this, this team leadership model that, that Christ put forth. Let me map out today for you. Um, chapter 2 was all about talking about the opposition that we're going to face. Hey, here's what the false teachers are like. Here are the experts, the self-proclaimed experts that you should not follow. Verse 3 is basically going to be just this idea. There aren't just religious nuts that will try to take you off path. There are anti-religious nuts that will try and take you off path. Verse 4, here's what they're going to say. Verses 5 to 6, here's what's really going on. And then next week we'll, we'll tackle these things. Verses 7 to, to 10, uh, here's, here's what's in store. 8 to 10, uh, God's timing and reason for delay. And then we'll kind of finish things out in a little bit. So the whole of uh, chapter 2, we're in this series, by the way, if you're new with us, welcome. Um, we're in a series that we've called On Guard. And, uh, and these three little chapters in Second Peter are, are pretty focused on some, some different things. The big idea here for chapter 3 is this. Jesus is coming back. He takes his attention in chapter 3 and he takes it and he says, here's last days. Here's what's coming. Here's, here's what you can remember. Stay alert. Guard your hope. Guard what you're really thinking about. And he's going to address some of those things. Now, I want you to look at the pyramid behind me for a moment and, um, and ask you to raise your hands. If um, How many of you caught that one of the trumpets is flipped upside down? Raise your hand and just keep them up for one second. Okay. Um, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. So here's what this means. This means that um, either A, you ought to be one of the guardians of our theology because you know that each individual part, all the little subtle details and the way you think about it really matter. You can go and put your hands down now. Um, how many of you caught that, uh, that we had changed 
from uh, from a sword to to trumpets. Okay, all right. Put your hands on. How many of you have no idea that these have been changing over the course? And, and you've and you've been here before. All right, we've got a couple. Thank you. Now here's here's what's fantastic. Uh, we need both kinds, right? We need you kind of big picture people who are like, I wouldn't have, if you paid me a million dollars, I would have never noticed that little trumpet upside down. So we need you kind of big picture people, but here's the thing. We actually really, really need your, your detailed eye people as well. Now, it may mean that you're good at catching subtleties in theology. It may mean that you just need to join the atmosphere team. And Anne, raise your hand. She's right here. She'd love some help. You might just have an eye for decorating and have no clue about theology. That's okay. I'm not sure what it means, but that's what it is. All right. Verse 3. Here's what it says. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following after their own sinful desires. What he's going to talk about here uh, as he introduces kind of this New section talking to Christians about scoffers is scoffers and their scoffing. What is their MO? They have an attitude of intellectual superiority. They ask questions, but only to entrap. And they absolutely despise divine revelation. We see this in the way Jesus was treated. We see this in the book of Acts. And we see it today as well. Peter lays it out. They're following their own lust. They're right in their own eyes. If you go back and look at chapter 2, it, it lays out what their, what their personalities are like. They treat lightly topics that are heavy, and they give immense weight to things that won't even last. The title of the message today sums up kind of their... Um, their general stance. Now, I'm being really vulnerable with you today because I'm giving you some information that can hurt me. That's part of what being vulnerable is about. When I was growing up, the words really and the words seriously meant something totally different than they do today. Today, really and seriously mean something different. Um, there, there is a sense that when something comes along and if someone were to come and cut you off in line and shove their way in, and, and you were there, you might step back and say what? Yeah, and it's all in how you say it, right? Really? And then for effect, what do you do? Seriously? Right? I mean, you had that one on, or you say it again. Now, I just... Okay, again, being vulnerable with you. This grinds on me. This, for some reason, this is like fingernails on a chalkboard, which actually doesn't bother me that much. This bothers me. I'm not sure why. I actually use this mockingly around our house sometimes because my wife knows how much that I despise it. And, and as I'm kind of mocking the mockers who are mocking, I, I find myself starting to use it more and more. So I'm asking for accountability to not use it. If you hear me say this and it flows out of my mouth generally, please tackle me. Secondly, please don't use it around me as best as you can. If you do that, I will take that as a direct affront, like you are attacking me, because you know this information now, okay? Peter was warning... Some of you are already making plans. Did someone just say it? Hell, come on. Peter's saying this. Peter's saying that mockers are coming. Here's what I'm saying. They're here. Mockers are here. I mean, we must be getting close because of the scoffing and the mocking that openly goes on. uh, Here is what um, their their thinking is all about. Verse 4 kind of summarizes the philosophy of naturalistic thinking, of man at the center and man as all there is. Now, this worldview is super prevalent. Many people that you bump into in the Silicon Valley will will have this worldview. This will be their predisposed stance. The assumption is that God doesn't or can't intervene in human history. This means, of course, that the flood would be denied, the return of Christ would be denied, both in our passage today. You will be mocked, in fact, today over these same kinds of issues. God has intervened in the past, creation, a worldwide flood, 
the cross of Jesus Christ? Come on, really? That's what they'll say. And God will intervene in the future. God is coming again, and he's going to judge the earth with fire. And the mockers say, seriously? That's what they do. Verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, you ought to spot something there. And this is a great question to ask and a great question to keep in mind as you make um, assertions about what you believe. These people just made an assertion about what's been going on since the beginning of creation. Does that sound a little pompous? Were they there at the beginning of creation? No. Are the people who would oppose the Christian worldview? No. Catch this. Were Christians there? No. So it's pretty proud to say, here's what's been going on since the beginning of creation. Let's put our ideas on the table and let's make our assertions and why we've come to these things, but let's hold on to it a little bit loosely, even amongst Christians, as to what really went on at the beginning of creation. So what's really going on? What does Peter say is really going on with this question? What he says is this. There's forgetting, but it's purposeful. There's purposeful forgetting. Now, remember those things that I told you that the South remembers and forgets and the things that people here remember and forget? Here's a little hint. We didn't really forget. It's not like we, it's out of our minds. We have no idea how to treat people humanely and with good manners around here. What's the reality? It's just culturally accepted not to do so. And sometimes it's more expedient and feeds the flesh to just shove past and walk right through. It's not that we really forgot. It's not that people in the South really forget calories and the effects of cholesterol. Right? It's just that whole cubes of butter are fairly cheap and gravy is super yummy. So they just keep doing it, right? What they've done is they've taken information and they've put it out of their mind, right? And culturally, you say, well, that's, that's acceptable. That's, that's the norm. That's what's going on right here in verse 5. They are purposefully forgetting, conveniently forgetting. We know manners, we just choose to ignore it. Romans says this, that you look at all of creation, the span of creation, you look at it and you know there's a designer, it's easy to just dismiss that and, and, and cram that into a worldview. That's what Peter's saying. Peter uses two examples from the past where God intervened. He spoke creation into existence and he judged the whole world with a flood. Verse 5, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That means he spoke it into, into being. And that by means of these, the, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Now some people mock God in a very religious way. They speak threats. They speak promises uh, they speak riches and words that God never sent them to say. I think I was just living for a week with my brother down in the land of people who would probably culturally be more easily duped by the, by the religious mockers. Then when I fly home and think about here, there's a different kind of mocker that doesn't feel the need to go in through religious channels, but actually lifts itself out of that and is very anti-religious. And I think that while the South might be more prone to be duped into false teachers who mock God that way, I think we're far more prone here to be above it all, right? And mock God a totally different way. Deny his existence. If he's there, he's sort of a, you know, a grand being that we can't know. He certainly didn't reveal himself. He certainly can never intervene. We know what's gone on. So while one set of people in our land are probably more predisposed to, to, be, to get sucked into the religious nut, there's a whole second set that are prone to get sucked into the anti-religious nut. 
And they're both mocking God. We might be in the very capital of pride and mockery about all things God. Right here in this valley. So, so, so know that a lot of what is being disseminated out to the rest of the country, much of it's born right here. Now, I would say New York and probably L.A. would, would rival us, wouldn't you say? I mean, those three cities, if you just take those three cities, there's a lot of pride, a lot of cynicism, a lot of mockery that comes out from there. I want to give you a couple of examples of people that um, you've probably heard of and, and just see a, take a look at some of what they're saying. Here's one, Richard Dawkins, outspoken atheist. Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Another outspoken um, voice of what would some would call progressives would be this. Faith means making a virtue out of not thinking. It's nothing to brag about. And those who preach faith and enable and elevate it are our intellectual slaveholders, keeping mankind in a bondage to fantasy and nonsense. You know what's happening with both of these quotes? Both of these men are taking faith and they're putting themselves outside of it and they're standing in judgment over faith. They're making assertions as if their assertions were not based on faith. A big proponent of evolution, Dawkins boldly questions anyone who would believe differently than him. Here's what he says. It is absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane. What I would say is with both of these guys who are giant proponents of blowing apart faith is that they prove too much. Because their own statements are statements about faith, about trusting in some things that aren't provable in a laboratory. Every single grid you ever come across requires faith. Here's the difference with a Christian. A Christian is one who says, I'm in with the guy who predicted his own death and then predicted rising from his own death. And then it happened. I'm in with him. So if he makes a statement affirming the creation that God made the male and female, I'm in with him. So a lot in the Old Testament I don't understand. There's a t- I wasn't there. I don't know those details. But if Jesus affirms the Old Testament, if the ones that he appointed with authority, namely Peter, affirms a worldwide flood, I'm not an expert in this. I haven't given my life to a degree in geology, but I'm in with the guy who rose from the dead. That's why it's so foundational for you as a Christian to get locked in. If if you haven't gone through the pain of understanding what your faith is based on in terms of uh, history and in terms of evidence about resurrection, which is clearly supernatural, it's good to get clear on that. I tell you, once that miracle opens the door, it it actually makes makes things easier to say, okay, now, now we can start talking about some of the finer points of detail. Now, mocking is nothing new and it's not going away. Look at Jeremiah 17. People scoff at me and say, what is this message from the Lord you talk about? Why don't your predictions come true? You're a prophet for Pete's sake. You stink at it. And the prophets of old just had to report what God said in the timing that God said. Read it for yourself. Some of them, there are some lengthy windows of time where day after day and week after week and month after month, and catch this, year after year went by, and God didn't give the answer key yet. And the guy was just made to keep proclaiming what essentially was a foolish message until you saw the answer that God gave. How about Jesus? He was mocked by the people that thought they had no need for a Savior. They were the ones in control. They were the ones with the swords. Years later, we have Frederick Nietzsche. It says, God is dead. And on and on we could go all through history. Let me show you something really, really recent. Just within the last few weeks, 
Creation, faith, and mocking, by the way, are daily news. It's it's everywhere. You just you just look for it. You start to you start to read it and see there are opposing worldviews, both of which stand on faith, and they collide all the time. Just this month, Pope Francis. He essentially reiterated a 50-year-old Catholic Church teaching that affirms the Big Bang and evolution. And the giant firestorm of his words was this, God's not a magician with a magic wand. Now, Pope Francis is believed by millions of people around the world to be the direct descendant of Peter, the guy that we're reading right here. And he's disagreeing with Peter by making that claim. A fair question for someone who says that God is not a magician with a magic wand and in essence is saying God can't step in and intervene and change things. A fair question would be this. If it's required that it took millions or billions of years to get to the point that we're at, does it not suit your logic to say that it would require the same thing for it to wind down. Second law of thermodynamics says entropy, that it's going to wind down. Many scientists who are very secular and leave God out of the equation say the same thing the Bible says, that the world's going to burn up. It's just the timing's a little bit different, and the method is a little bit different. Here's what the Bible claims over and over, and certainly what Peter is saying. God speaks, and it happens. God intervenes in this world. God spoke, and things came into be. God spoke, and he judged the world with a flood. God is going to speak, and the world is going to be judged with fire. The present heaven and the present earth. Now look down at verse 13 of 2 Peter 2. We'll get here in two weeks. He's recreating. He's not just creating, destroying, but he's recreating. There's a new heaven and a new earth that would require a magic wand-like act of God, would it not? So Peter's saying is going to happen. So really the question for us is who do we trust? Is the church the ultimate authority? Is our observation and our forefathers' remembrance of how things always have been the authority? Is our current observation from our slice of the world and our technology's ability this source of authority? Is it just what we can prove in a repeatable manner using the scientific method, our authority? And if that's your authority, by the way, for all of history you can't reproduce it, so you've got to lean on what? Faith. A grid, a way of seeing the world and what's going on. So faith is required by every single person you meet. Hear me. Not in replacement of logic and reason, but in addition to logic and reason. Christians need to hear that. Very, very anti-Christians need to hear that as well. I close with this. You might be sitting there saying, okay, we know mocking is real. I get it. We know it's coming. If I'm not personally being attacked right now, if I want to live my life boldly as a witness for Christ, it's coming. Help. What do I do about it? How do I, how do I deal with it? We're going to look at some more of this in a couple of weeks, but let me show you just from the passage what Peter's taught us so far um, to kind of give you a, a, a few things. If you ever have two hours in downtown Atlanta, there are two museums right next to each other. One is the Worldwide Coke Headquarters, And a couple hundred yards away is the Civil Rights Museum, both in downtown Atlanta, both close by, both cost $15. Can I plead with you to go to the Civil Rights Museum before going to the Coke Museum? I don't care if you go to the Coke one too, but sugar water or looking at our our country's history a little bit. I went and I had about an hour and 15 minutes, not enough time. But I went and walked through it, and I actually had a knotted stomach for most of, the, most of the time that I was in there. But it was so good to walk through and just see images that we know about, that we know have gone on, but to see them kind of brought to life in a powerful way. There were leaders of a movement who were trying to gain equality for people of color 
who had for a hundred years had them. And they were now fighting to make them a reality because our country hadn't, hadn't been there. And what these leaders of the movement, movement had done is they were prepping and teaching white and black together who were going to go down and make this change happen, how to do so and face this opposition nonviolently. And so they prepped them with some different things. They wanted to warn them that opposition is coming so that they could overcome the temptation to run or quit when the going got tough. So they role-played. They yelled at them. They called them names worse than what I said at the start. They physically started to hurt them and move them around and drag them, all to train them and prep them for what it was going to be like. And of course, opposition came. Spit on, yelled at, mocked, punched, kicked, Here's possibly the sickest part. The authorities of the land not only stood by and did nothing, but many, many times jumped in and helped. The training was to not retaliate in kind. The leaders of that movement understood there was something big at stake, giant at stake. And so they wanted their people warned. You know what Peter's doing in this passage? He's giving us the same warning. You're going to march forward with the message of the gospel and you will face opposition. He's wanting to give us prep so that we cannot respond in kind. In essence, he's giving us a workshop on how to handle opposition. Step one is just to know it's coming. Don't be shocked when it shows up in your face. Wow, something strange is happening. Someone's opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me give you three quick things. One he says is this, just sincere thinking. Friends, if your brain is not engaged, if you don't know why you believe what you believe, You ought to start there. That's going to take some discipline. Some of you have just never been tested on some of these things. You've never been questioned on some of these things. So you've had no motive, no impetus to go and study up on the answer. Some of you had some really good answers when you came to faith, but it's been a long time. You ought to be solid on that. Number two is the unapologetic dependence on the Bible. Remember what Peter said? He said, the Old Testament, the New Testament, lean on those. God wrote it down. God made a point of writing it down. Get to know it. Lean on it. Do you realize that most of the world doesn't have books on apologetics? They don't have workshops that you can go to to kind of learn how to do this stuff? You know what that tells me? If God's plan of attack for 98% of the world and 98% of history, is that the Holy Spirit inside of you and the written Word of God is enough, then guess what? It's enough. Don't trick yourself into thinking, if I could just take another class, if I could just afford a few more books on learning how to, to talk with people about my faith. Man, take a step of faith and start talking with people about your faith. Live your faith out loud. They'll come talk to you. Sometimes politely, sometimes not politely. Often it'll start behind your back. It will engage people in the message of the gospel. Number three is this. Love peace, but be willing to fight. You've got to be peace lovers. But you've got to be willing to fight. Let me clarify the fight for you. The fight is not to dominate and win your opponent in the way that you might think. The fight is to win your opponent to Christ. Totally different mindset, right? It's not to stock up on information so you can slice people down and paint them in a corner and say, there, how do you like it? It's not to be mocking and cynical and brash and proud and then just outdo one another in debating sparring matches. It's to win that person to Christ. Let me invite the band up. I say this often when we go through a book. This is a three-chapter book. Would you please go read the whole letter sometime this week? I don't know, maybe take you between 15 and 20 minutes. 
What happens when we divorce one part of the Scripture from another part of the Scripture is we get some really wacky ideas. If you divorced this little section that we just looked at and didn't look at the passage where he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect, it could form some really pompous, jerky Christians that are hurting the cause of Christ because they're responding in kind. Let me direct your attention a couple of verses down that we're going to get to in a couple in, in next week. Verse 9 says that God is patient with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know what the prayer for this church is? It's nothing short than that every person in this South Bay area would come to know Christ. That's the heart of God. Every person would reach repentance. That's the heart of God. He doesn't want you to perish. That's the good news. Back up two verses and look at verse 7. The bad news is that a day of judgment and destruction for the ungodly is coming. I hope that those two passages would inform how you respond to family members this Thanksgiving when they go, so Mike, you're still following uh, the... You know, hippie Jesus guy? And you know with everything in you, that's been said just to needle you. I hope you remember, I hope it flashes through your brain. Oh yeah, I was told this was coming. Oh yeah, God wants this person needling me to come to repentance. Oh yeah, there's real destruction and judgment of the ungodly who mock God. And in a moment's prayer, God, would you help me to respond the way you'd want me to right now? Boom, and off you go. Let me pray. Jesus, you died for us. You're the good shepherd. You're the one who went after wandering sheep. God, none of us in this room who see you as glorious and good got there because we're smart. None of us got there because we're good and we seek after good things in our, of our own self. We got there as a free gift from you. God, would, would, would that be the, the stance that we take as we walk out of this room? Give us an urgency and a passion because there is judgment and there is destruction for the ungodly, but it's your patience, God, that's, that's holding out. You're not slow about your promise. You're being patient so that more can bend the knee to you now willingly. God, use us. I pray that we would pour our lives out, those of us who are Christians, as an offering and say, God, if, if it would be in your good plan to cause us to be mistreated and abused, would you help us to count that joyfully? God, bring us out of the shadows, those of us who've been hiding. Give us a godly, humble, courageous confidence to be your witnesses. We love you. Amen.